welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 28 of the Madden America podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Jennifer Barr. Dr. Barr is a passionate advocate for naturopathic approaches to health and well-being and she is the founder of Resilience Naturopathic. Resilience Naturopathic was founded with a mission to not only provide an alternative to those who struggle with mental health conditions, but to improve the way mental and behavioural health care is delivered in America. Dr. Barr received her Doctor of Naturopathic Medicine from Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. Prior to that, she was an Arabic translator for the US government and served six years in the US Navy. She received her Bachelor of Science in Physiology and Neurobiology from the University of Maryland, and she is president of the California Naturopathic Doctors Association, the founding vice president of the Psychiatric Association of Naturopathic Physicians, and a member of the House of Delegates for the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. Dr. Barr, thank you so much for talking with me today for the Madden America podcast. To begin, I'd like to ask a little about you and what led to your interest and work in natural alternatives to mainstream medical interventions for mental health conditions. So it's kind of a long story about how I ended up where I am as a naturopathic doctor. Um, I probably years and years and years before I even heard about naturopathic medicine, I was already interested in science. I grew up in uh, with a family that my mom was a teacher and she really loved science. Like she could have gone back and done things differently. She probably would have been a, a park ranger or something like that involved in uh, the natural sciences. So always doing things over the summer about like biology classes and workshops and things like that. So science was always my thing. And I had intended to become a doctor fairly early on, probably as late as high school would be the latest that it was really firmly cemented. I took a few detours about with, with my life, and I ended up in the military for a while, um, in part because I don't think that I was ready to fully commit to a life of, of practicing medicine and all the work that goes into medicine when I was only 18 years old. So I actually went into the military for about six years, and I was working as a, an Arabic linguist, actually, in the, in the U.S. Navy for six years. And then that's when things sort of started to take a shift. I was in the Navy and I was actually also going to school full time. Uh, I was studying physiology and neurobiology with the intention of becoming a physician. And then things shifted for me uh, when I ended up needing to go see a psychiatrist myself. This was not my first time seeing a psychiatrist. Um, I'd had to see one when I was 16 or my mom made me go see one when I was 16. And, and at that time I was diagnosed with depression and I was given a, an SSRI which I now fully believe was the reason that I ended up in the state that I was eight years later when I went to go see a psychiatrist for the second time, because it made me manic. It made me uh, very, very manic, in fact. Um, I remember when I was 16, uh, taking the medication and you know, talking to my friends and coworkers and, and telling them like, yeah, I'm on an antidepressant while I'm literally bouncing around. They're like, you are not, in no way depressed. How are you on an antidepressant? And turns out I was manic. So the way that I ended up having things shift for me when I was in the military is I'd, you know, I'd gotten things under control after I was, you know, 16, I went off the medications on my own and at least I felt like things were under control and I just accepted that I was going to have lots of ups and downs in my life and, you know, hadn't identified those as depressed episodes or manic episodes until much, much later. And I always, you know, was able to work through them. And it turns out my psychiatrist who accurately diagnosed me with bipolar disorder when I was 24 he did thankfully point out that it was actually a gift to me in many ways because I was 
full-time in the military as an Arabic linguist, fighting two wars on with Arabic-speaking people, and going to school full-time at the University of Maryland studying physiology and neurobiology. And he said, you know, there's no way you could have done this if you didn't have this condition, which was really remarkable to me that the first person who ever diagnosed me accurately with a, a condition gave me a positive spin on it from the very beginning. And especially coming from the military, that was in no way expected. So I, I did manage to work through it. You know, in, in retrospect, I was looking back and very surprised that people hadn't noticed things when, you know, throughout the time, I think maybe because I was just so highly functional that it didn't really send off any alarm bells. But I remember going to work um, in the military in Maryland where I'd stopped to buy like $500 worth of children's toys to take into this, to my office for people to play with, to try and lighten the mood. And people just thought I was quirky. You know, even when I told people that I could, I could do anything, I could turn into a butterfly. They just asked me to, um, they were just like, yep, you probably could. And just let it be. And there, there was no concerns. It wasn't until I became really very depressed again that I, and became actually suicidal that I said, okay, I definitely need help. And I went to see a doctor and that was the doctor who diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. And I did point out that I was, had the benefit of being able to, to sort of cope and get through the downtimes by being, to be, being able to be overproductive during the higher times. So at that point then, was, I was about six months from getting out of the military and also from graduating. I actually ended up getting out of the military three weeks before I graduated. So it's one of my prouder moments. I managed to successfully do that in spite of having an uh, undiagnosed and untreated condition and no insight into having anything that could have changed that state for me. And then also being put on medication uh, for my last two semesters in school and actually last semester and a half that really, really changed my cognition, um, changed my personality. It changed so much about me. I'm so I'm really surprised that I was able to graduate successfully through all of that and really proud that I was able to overcome in spite of that. And Dr. Barr, how did you feel about your diagnosis of bipolar disorder? The diagnosis itself really knocked me down. Um, I had not heard anything positive ever said about somebody who had bipolar disorder. In fact, the military is not the best place for combating stigma. In fact, I was afraid that when I went to go see the psychiatrist that I was going to lose my security clearance that I had and that I was going to lose my job and potentially even be punished for it. That was really what was the, the mindset in the military at the time. And Fortunately, that's, that was not the case. In fact, I was able to maintain my security clearance far after that while I was sorting out what I was going to end up doing with my life professionally um, in spite of this diagnosis. But it was the, the, the mentality of the culture. So I went in expecting that I was going to have a lot of bad things happen, that I was going to lose my job, and that basically that getting this diagnosis meant that I was doomed to a life of mediocrity and that I was going to be a prisoner of my own brain and a prisoner of the system for the rest of my life because this was meant to be a life sentence as it was presented to me. So I, of course, then thought, well, there's no way I could ever be a doctor. There's no way I could ever be anything. So it took me a lot of time to to sort of recollect myself and gather my my thoughts about how I had gotten this diagnosis in the first place and then what to do next. And so I ended up taking some time. I got out of the military and then I, and I graduated from school. I thought, well, maybe I could do psychology instead because I also did not like the medications. They made me feel horrible. Um, I went from being 
a, basically a straight A student to getting a D in one of my biology classes. And I had to retake it. And then it, and that was the semester that I started the lithium. And I know that the lithium was part of it because I remember feeling like I was stoned the entire time I was on it. And this is, I'd never even done drugs. Like I was not like, I had no, re- no reference point, but I was like, this has got to be what feeling, feeling stoned feels like. Like I can't think straight. My head is fuzzy. Like, um, I feel slow and really just super dull. Um, so I was like, well, how am I going to, how am I going to be able to be a physician and do this? And for some reason I thought, well, maybe psychology would be better that I could help people in other ways without having to give them medications. Cause these medications are not working for me. And I'm sure that they're doing just as much, if not worse to other people as well. But the, the psychology route felt a little too passive to me. I did take some courses in it considering a second bachelor's before working on a PhD and it felt pretty passive and not really my style. I'm kind of a, an assertive go-getter kind of person. Um, and I felt like I would probably get really frustrated working with people to slowly come to their, their places, which is what I understood um, psychology to be at the time. And, and still in some cases, that's definitely true. So I, I took a, a little bit of a detour and worked for as an Arabic translator as a government contractor for several years. And through that, started doing more research myself to try and figure out other ways to treat um, my condition and, and everything and did some volunteer work to try and learn more from the community and sort of reached a, a point where I decided I was going to still pursue medicine and I was going to just figure out how to do some natural things and other less invasive therapies to maybe reduce the amount of medication that people would have to take and hoping that it would make it so that the side effects weren't so bad and that people could live well um, and stable at the same time. And it was completely by accident that I found out about naturopathic medicine. I really would love to see naturopathic doctors and naturopathic um, naturopathic physicians. You know, it depends on which state you're in here in the states, which which one you can call yourself. Um, but I'd, I'd love to see naturopathic physicians throughout the country and and worldwide make more noise about what it is that that they offer and what, how they practice because it's truly an integrative approach. And if I had found out about it beforehand, I, I feel like my life would have been very different. But it was completely by accident. I found an article that had been written by an ND, and I thought that that was completely a made-up title to just try and have some more credibility than they actually deserved. And um, Googled it and found out that naturopathic medicine, which was basically what I was trying to, to sort of cobble together individually by going to medical school and then traveling the world to learn about herbs and nutrition and various different practices throughout the world that um, were not using the conventional pharmaceuticals, um, that it already existed in naturopathic medicine. And so that's sort of how I ended up at naturopathic medicine was uh, completely by chance that this program already existed. And I, you know, fortuitously uh, saw an article written by an ND. But for realistically, it was my own experience in getting the diagnosis and having the treatment that I did and the, the treatment that I got from my, my providers where they didn't really want to listen to how I felt um, on the medications. And their answers when I said, no, this isn't, this isn't making me feel good was to just give me a different medication that made me feel just as bad or worse. And, and at the same time, I would go on and off medications like many people do, and especially people who have bipolar disorder because of the, you know, missing the manic episodes because holy cow, how hard is it to to get a diagnosis that you're told that when you feel your best and you feel like you're your most functional is when you're actually unwell. I mean, that, that was a hard thing to hear as well. So I went on on and off medications a lot. And I also saw that that was just as damaging to my life as not as, 
as the medications themselves. And so it was trying to find a better solution. So it was a combination of, you know, trying to find a, an answer for myself and already having been interested in medicine and helping other people. And then specifically in psychiatry, because of the fact that I saw things were so, um, not the best functioning that they could be not really helping people in a way that I thought was helpful. Uh, that led me to this. Well, it's fascinating to hear how you took your own experiences and in searching for a solution, you came to something that allowed you to help and support other people. But I just wanted to ask Dr. Barr, the time you described where you were working in the Navy, presumably in a very high pressure role, and you were studying simultaneously, the stress of that must have been almost intolerable at times. So how did you cope with those stresses and strains? And did that have a role in your struggles with your mental health? It absolutely did. And I, it was in fact, has led me to get a disability rating from the, the uh, Veterans Administration because they did say that my role or my, my service did contribute to me being worse. Um, in fact, when I first got diagnosed, uh, believe it or not, I was threatened by one of my superior officers that saying that, well, you didn't disclose that you had ever been diagnosed with depression when you joined, so we could just kick you out on fraudulent enlistment. And uh, rather than trying to give me support uh, through the process. Fortunately, that didn't happen. And they did determine that despite the fact that I had the history and that they decided that I was likely to get the diagnosis anyway, that my service did make my condition irreversibly worse. And so I do have a, a disability rating with the Department of uh, Veterans Affairs. Mm. So um, the stress, absolutely. You know, I, I like I said, my, my psychiatrist did say you couldn't have gotten through this if you didn't have the condition, but I probably wouldn't have been as, I wouldn't have suffered from the condition if I hadn't put myself through so much stress at the same time. I think that the schooling was probably not the biggest um, part, more than the, I think it was more so the stress of the work itself and the fact that um, because we, this was during Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. So I was in the military from 1998 to 2004. I think that because of the intensity of the, the workload and because we had to have round-the-clock sort of coverage for things, uh, I ended up working mid-shifts, which meant that I got very little sleep. Um, my workday started at 11 p.m. and ended at 7 a.m., and I went from there directly to school. So I didn't sleep until you know, four or 5 p.m. And so I was getting little sleep at odd hours, um, which undoubtedly contributed to things getting worse. And then I did do a stint for a short period of time in Saudi Arabia where I did rotating 12-hour shifts. So it would be um, 12-hour shifts for four to five days at a time and then a few days off, and then it would shift to the other time. So it would be like 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. and then 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. And those disturbances in my circadian rhythm undoubtedly contributed to the worsening of my condition. And the, yeah, having the amount of stress that I put myself under, it may have still been just as bad if I wasn't going to school at the same time. School in some ways was a relief because it was something I enjoyed and I, I looked forward to and it was something that I was doing for myself. But yeah, if, I, if I'd had better coping skills and knew some of the things that I know now, um, I think things probably would have been easier for me. Well, that kind of mainstream support that people often get, which is mainly medication, let's face it, often gives people a whole pile of other issues to deal with on top of their already stressful lives. And you mentioned yourself that you often felt that the medications made things more difficult rather than helped the situation. Well, you know, I, I, could, I could really imagine that things might have gotten even worse for me if I hadn't had 
the luck of getting a psychiatrist who spent more than the average amount of time for the military with me and did his due diligence and really dug in to make sure that there was no signs of mania because I went in for depression. I was suicidal when I went to see him and I'd had a history of depression before. That was all I knew. As far as I knew when I had what we now identify as mania or hypomania, um, that that was actually, I thought that was just me being really my best and that that was what I was when I was, um, feeling good. And so I had no insight that there was something abnormal about that. I just thought I was a, a lucky person who was really happy and really productive. Um, so if I had gone in and not had that doctor who had investigated as, as thoroughly as he did, I could have been put on an SSRI again. And that SSRI probably would have made me floridly manic, far worse than I was the first time I was put on an SSRI. So while I am um, was not happy with the results of getting put on the lithium. And then they did also put me on an SSRI once they had me on the lithium. Well, I wasn't as thrilled with how I felt on it. And I, I think that in, in retrospect now, looking back, I should probably be pretty grateful that I didn't get just the SSRI. Not trying to say that the lithium was really great necessarily. Um, and I think that the bigger, bigger issue is the fact that there was um, such a negative culture around seeking help you know, and not looking at ways to support people and recognizing you are in a very stressful situation, a stressful position. Even if I wasn't going to school, the type of work that I was doing um, can leave people with PTSD, even though I wasn't on the battlefield in, in Iraq. There was still a lot of things going on that people ended up with PTSD from the work that I was doing. And not having ways to really address that at the time, I think that they have improved in some ways for how they handle these things now. And, and also having that culture where people felt like if they went to get help, they were going to lose their job um, and they were going to be punished for getting help. Then I, I think that those are, are even bigger problems than, than the medication necessarily. But yeah, that it's the whole, the whole system was not set up to help anybody succeed. And, and in fact, it was help set up to have anybody who had even the slightest possibility of having, uh, or even the slightest susceptibility to a mental health condition to definitely get worse. And I saw it with a lot of my colleagues around me. And I did see people who did lose their jobs because they didn't have the courage and the insight to say, I don't care if I get in trouble, I need help. And they were told to go get help. And when they were told to go get help, that's when they did lose their job because they didn't have enough insight to take care of their own needs. That's so cruel, isn't it? To induce those experiences in people through such a stressful work environment, but then to hold it against someone who comes clean and opens up about their struggles. Dr. Barr, I'd like to move on, if it's okay, to talk a bit more about naturopathic treatments. Firstly, could you help me understand why naturopathic treatments might be a good option for someone who struggles with their mental health? Absolutely. So with my approach to naturopathic medicine, and I'm going to speak just for myself because, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can uh, sort of use all of the different tools that we have in naturopathic medicine to help people to thrive. Um, I do focus exclusively with my patients on helping those who have mental health conditions. So I've got a very, um, I, I think, a pretty refined way of looking at it and having my own experience really changes the way that I look at things. You know, I went into medicine to try and help people to heal. My goal is for people when they're done working with me, that they're doing really well on their own and that they're not needing to take, you know, just replacing their medications with supplements, um, that they're actually getting from their environment and their lifestyle what they need to do well and that they've done the work to help their body to heal and recover from the original 
cause that or or the original set of circumstances that led to the symptoms that they were experiencing as well as recover from the changes that have happened in the brain chemistry and the biochemistry uh, from the medications that they've likely been taking for many years in some cases so with naturopathic medicine we really do take an integrative approach you know we use the conventional medications in some circumstances um, and I will use them in very rare circumstances when I need to I try to avoid um, SSRIs, because I don't think that they're the best medication. I know that some of your previous guests have called them poison, and I don't go quite as far to say that they're poison, but they're pretty close. With the, the naturopathic approach, we usually are seeing people who are already on medications at this point. My goal in life is to get it to the point that we're seeing integrative and naturopathic providers first, um, so that we can try to avoid medications, because it is possible when we start with naturopathic therapies to help people avoid medications in the long run. So what we're looking at is things like diet and lifestyle that are contributing to um, disorders of your endocrine system, things that can impact the way that your hormones are functioning, that can then change the way you're sleeping and can change the way that your metabolism is working in, in ways that will in, end up causing symptoms of mental health conditions. Uh, can cause insomnia, anxiety, depression, um, et cetera, if you have imbalances in how your cortisol is functioning, uh, melatonin, thyroid function especially. Um, those are the main areas that I see. So getting those into balance um, can sometimes help just resolve a treatment uh, a condition um, overall on its own. Um, looking at ways that your body handles certain nutrients. There's genetic variations that people have that will change the way that their body handles synthetic versus natural forms of nutrients. It will also change the way that their body processes out some of those excitatory neurotransmitters that we know for sure cause people to be more anxious, um, agitated. There are fight or flight neurotransmitters. That's what they're there for is to help get us into those states um, that we can respond quickly to threats. Um, but sometimes we will get into those states quite often where we get stuck in those, and part of that can be because we have changes in the enzyme functionality for processing those out of our body. And so, a lot of times we'll see people. This is true for me, in fact, um, where they have a challenge in how they process something like folic acid, the synthetic form of folate, where they're not able to make as many of the. They're not able to, to methylate, which is helping to produce these neurotransmitters. So then we'll start feeding that with, you know, bypassing that system by making sure you get the active forms of folate, but then we're overproducing the, um, the, those neurotransmitters. And then if the body doesn't, can't clear them, then we have them flooding our system. Um, and then you see people with anger, agitation, and anxiety. Um, and so making sure that we understand where people are at with what their body can process um, to, to sort of work around that. That's one of the things that we can do. Um, and then we also use a lot of other uh, treatments that can help to sort of put band-aids on things like herbal medicines will help. You know, I, I don't use those very often because they are like band-aids. They're basically crude forms of drugs. Uh, so to me, that's not really helping people to resolve their, their condition, right? Like I said, I want to help people not need me in the long run. Um, I also use a type of medicine called homeopathy, which you're probably familiar with being in the UK that does actually help people to reduce their susceptibility. That's really where homeopathy comes in, is it stimulates the body to heal and reduces susceptibility to conditions. Um, so for instance, you know, I, with, with me and my genetic makeup, um, 
I have a tendency more toward being quicker to anger and to excitability, but not anxiety. And some people with the same exact genetic makeup could have, or same genetic polymorphisms that I was talking about, would have more likelihood to be anxious, even though we have the same contributing factors. And so there's still unique variations in how an individual will experience something. And that's where homeopathy comes in is to help um, on that individual experience of the same condition or the same causative factors um, and helping the body to heal and restore that balance on its own. So then it can effectively process things and gather the nutrients and the resources and, and things from the environment and lifestyle that it needs to be as optimally functioning as possible. Well, what I like about a naturopathic approach is the fact that you're considering the whole person and considering how the physical affects the mind and the mood. Because sometimes I get the impression that psychiatry would rather not be bothered with the somatic things. They seem to want to focus just on neurotransmitters and brain chemicals. But that isn't considering the whole person, is it? It's not. And, you know, I, I still see a psychiatrist through uh, because I need somebody to be checking on me to make sure that I'm still doing okay, even though through using homeopathic medicine and the other things that I've talked about that I use with my patients, the diet, the lifestyle, you know, looking at my genetic variations, um, that I have been able to get off of medications and be very stable without any episodes for many years now. So, you know, I'm, they, they label me as being in remission and, and I will accept that there are definitely things in my environment that could trigger another episode for me in the future. So I need to be very mindful and that's why I still see a psychiatrist. But I'll tell you, it's it's very, very positive for me that I get to go see a psychiatrist a couple of times a year because it always reinforces to me the importance of doing what it is that I do because my psychiatrist never talks to me about the fact, like about what's going on in my life that could be contributing. You know, if I, I happen to go, I, I intentionally go and see him at the times when I have historically had the biggest struggles, which are generally around time changes, which is very common for people with bipolar disorder, the change in light can really impact mood, um, both for the for manic episodes or for depressive episodes. And rather than taking a look at what else is going on in your life, you know, how are you eating? What are, are you exercising? You know, he will ask what my sleep is like now. He didn't always ask what my sleep was like, uh, but he never really asks about things that are going on in my life. He just always tries to say, are you sure you don't want to go back on lithium? Are you sure you don't want to go back on lithium? That's his answer for everything. So, it's um, it's good for me to help keep that in mind for my patients who that's all that they've ever experienced before, that that's really the answer for a lot of different things is which medication should we put you on to rather than how can you get moving? How can you eat better? What are, how can you look at how you're handling stress? What in your life is, it, is all of this stuff that you're doing? Is it all necessary? I wanted to ask about that because I'm really interested to know that in your practice helping people, you must come across a fair few people who have either been through the psychiatric system and ended up on medications, or equally those who are still quite invested in the medical model, and who may say, well, this is all brain chemicals and I need these medications. So I just wondered how you approach working with people who might need some encouragement that naturopathic approaches can be at least as, if not more, effective than mainstream treatments. So... Most of the people who end up coming to find us are, have found us because of the fact that the medication hasn't worked for them or they ref, they refuse to take it and they're they're finding that they're having the same sort of problems that with their uh, prescribing physician or their their primary care physician or psychiatrist that I think you and I have experienced I don't know about well that I've definitely experienced where people are just trying to put me in a box and put me on medication and and send me out the door as quickly as possible. Um, 
that being said, there are some people who come and they, they are really looking just at how can we manipulate my neurotransmitters? You know, which amino acids do, do I need to take that are precursors? Can, you know, what can we do that's natural that basically that does the same things as these drugs? Fortunately, because I have, you know, the, the background where I'm a, a scientist by, by nature and at heart, that I talk them through a lot of the, the issues and with the, the research and a lot of the issues with the science itself and how we're presuming that we know exactly what's going on in the brain when we in no way know what's going on in the brain. I talk to them about the uh, placebo washouts that they do for studies with, uh, with uh, the psychotropic medications. So they're basically stacking it so that when it's barely better than placebo, it's only because they've already gotten rid of people who already look to be really strong responders to placebo. And if we kept everybody in who could have any response to placebo, they would be worse than placebo. So I talked to them about that and how, you know, when we try to manipulate the brain chemistry and the biochemistry, that really what we're doing is we're, we're ignoring, we're, we're, we're trying to pretend that we don't have a, a full highway system in our bodies. You know, and if you look at the highways, if you're trying, if there's, there's an accident on one road, all of the um, roads around it get backed up. And when we're trying to, to use the medications or even supplements for that matter in ways that are trying to manipulate brain chemistry, we're doing the same sorts of things in our brains and in our bodies that we're doing on the highways when we're doing construction or having an accident or something like that. So we end up having a lot of downstream side effects um, that we didn't intend because of something we wanted to do in one area only. Um, and it's, it's just not possible to affect one single thing in our body because everything is connected to everything else, which is why not doing a whole person, whole body approach makes no sense to me. So I talked them through that and I explained to them about um, you know what my goal is in helping to work with them, which is to help them not need medications, period, or supplements in the long run for them to actually be able to just live well um, and get what they need from their environment. And uh, most people seem to to really resonate with that message. Uh, I don't know very many people that, and maybe it's my small circle that I have around me, but I don't know very many people if you had to ask them, would, would do you want to have to take pills for the rest of your life? Um, or not. Most people don't want to, regardless of what the what they're taking pills for. And that's, I guess, one place where the the stigma might be slightly positive. Um, or you know, if I can try to have any sort of positive spin on on stigma associated with mental health conditions, is that it gives people more motivation to not want to have to take pills for the rest of their life. In some cases, not at all, unfortunately. That's important, isn't it? That realization for people that a diagnosis doesn't mean that there's only one option for treatment that there are alternatives out there. And even though they don't get anything like the kind of advertising and attention that the pharmaceuticals get, the alternatives have huge success in helping people. Yeah, they really do. And it's it, the thing that's really, I think, probably the biggest challenge that we face with helping, helping people to understand this is the fact that we are currently ensconced in a system where the standard is a double-blind placebo-control crossover trial, which by its very nature puts people in a box rather than looking at a person as an individual or as a whole person. Because you can put 20 people into this box for depression, for major depressive disorder, but some of those people are going to have um, things going on in their body that are contributing, like they're going to have um, perhaps celiac disease or hypothyroidism, or they're going to have 
you know, in, in different ways that their body is able to absorb and process nutrients. Or they might have migraines, which is a different type of nutrient deficiency um, correlation. They may have, um, they also may have, you know, environmental considerations. They may live in a place that has um, very high levels of neurotoxins in the environment, places like near a golf course, places that use um, or have a lot of toxic um, dumping through industrial processes into their environment that are causing inflammation of their nervous system. There's, it could be just that they've got a really poor diet and it's because they've got the social, you know, we can talk about the social justice of things here too, because they're low income and all they can afford is processed, poor quality foods. So you're going to put all of these people with all these different things that are contributing to the fact that they have a symptom of depression and put them into a study. And then you can only study that one thing. And then you're going to study one treatment for it and not in no way can take into consideration the whole person. So with that model being what we just accept as the absolute truth in science and medicine, there is no way that we can effectively treat a whole person and find whole person's systems-based outcomes that will address underlying causes. It's just, it, just doesn't match up. It's it, and it, it, that's probably the biggest challenge that we're facing in trying to help people to really recover from these things because it, recovery types of programs don't fit well into that model. Absolutely. And Dr. Barr, how should we go about challenging the dominance of the pharmaceuticals? Because they've so successfully sold this model of brain chemical imbalances and the need to take the drugs long term. So I just wanted your thoughts on how we as a society could challenge that. I think that those of us who have experienced things, um, mental health conditions, mental health challenges, and seen recovery, I think we have to speak up more and more. We have to come out of the shadows. We need to, to speak as much as possible and as loudly as possible about it. Um, that's, that's a big part of it. I think that, that we need a lot more conversations. And unfortunately, I think that another part of it is that we need some, we need some societal changes too. That I think there's a lot of things that are happening in society that are contributing to the worsening of our mental health state as a nation. You know, I, I actually think that social media is giving people PTSD because of the way that it works. It's, you know, you get exposed to things that are very traumatic. Yeah. So, so I, I think that ultimately <laughs> We, we need some societal changes for how we handle things with how we're communicating with each other and with the, the way that we're functioning with our media. I mean, one of the things that contributes to people having such terrible insomnia, which then contributes to anxiety and depression and psychosis and bipolar disorder worsening, is light, so much light exposure and so much media exposure that's constantly bombarding our brains and telling our pineal gland that it's still daytime and it's not time to produce melatonin and it throws our entire system out of whack when we're not getting the sleep that we need. Working through how we communicate with each other, I think is probably the best I can come up with. I mean, it's such a a tough question and uh, it's something that I struggle with daily because that's one of my ultimate missions in life is to change the way that we're delivering mental health care and the way that we're communicating about these things and in order to make those changes happen we we have to start talking about the fact that what we're doing right now just isn't working i agree and it struck me while you were speaking that 
Across the world, we seem to be taking a symptomatic approach to society's problems in much the same way that we adopt a largely symptomatic approach to managing mental health. We're not addressing the root causes of poverty and inequality, sexism, racism, and all the other things. We're just trying to treat the symptoms in medicating away people's feelings. Uh, that's absolutely true. You know, I, um, I'm an activist in, in my within my profession, and then in general, I've become far more politically active. I actually um, do a lot of work with the legislature here in California. And one of the things that I just keep going back to, and, and this is probably bigger than what this, the purpose of this podcast is, but I ultimately think that what we really need to do to have the biggest impact on our health and on everything overall is to focus on the environment. And the reason for that is there are so many things in our environment that if we're not paying attention to what's happening in our, our natural areas, one, being in nature actually has shown scientifically to help with basically every mental health condition and chronic health condition, period. Spending time in nature improves outcomes across the board. If we're not preserving nature and using things that are not damaging to us um, as human beings and to other things around us, um, to even to molds, you know, people are having an increase in mold toxicity, which increases mental health conditions and mental health symptoms. The mold is responding to our chemicals that we're putting into the environment. And it's creating these toxins that we're then being exposed to as a way to try and protect itself. So if, if we want to go big picture, the way that we start to make things better for everything, for mental health conditions, chronic health conditions, social justice, the economy, everything is to focus, in my opinion, on the environment, restoring the environment and protecting it um, and using methods that are um, as le least toxic as possible um, because that's going to help, that's going to reduce the impact on human health, which is then going to reduce the impact on the economy because then it will not have people not missing work and not having to be a drain on the resources of the healthcare system, regardless of what the healthcare system is in the place that you, like I'm part, I'm in a socialized um, healthcare system as a VA um, person in Medicare, basically socialized healthcare system. So um, these are draining the economy. So, I mean, I just don't see how, if we, how we can possibly resolve anything that we're facing today with the, you know, social justice, racism, sexism, the economy, healthcare. I don't see how we can fix any of that if we continue to ignore the environment. Well, like you, Dr. Barr, I feel that we're polluting our bodies while polluting the environment at the same time. And that can only go on for so long. Absolutely. I mean, realistically, if you look at some of the data, you know, I, I'm not taking medications and I haven't taken medications for many years, but I'm still taking them if I drink city water because it's in city water. Um, it's yeah, we're, we're really we're not paying attention to what we're doing to ourselves by what we're putting the environment that we're putting ourselves in. We're not paying attention to what's happening with, you know, the the things that we're putting on our body, the things we're putting into our body and the things that we have surrounding us. Thank you, Dr. Barr. I just wanted to ask if there was anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners. There's nothing necessarily that I want to talk about in addition to, to what we've already talked about. I mean, obviously, I've, I'm fairly passionate about a lot of these things that I have talked about today. And it's I uh, probably could could spend a lot of time talking about any of those one individual things. But 
Um, nothing. Uh, I mean, overall, I think the most important thing is to just seek out other options. You know, there there's lots of ways people don't have to suffer. Um, and, and I don't think that saying that psychiatry and the conventional pharmaceuticals uh, are, are bad is like, or, or that they're not helpful is it's like one or the other. There's a lot of black and white thinking. Well, I have to do this or, or this. Or there's only a few options. There's lots of things that could contribute. There's lots of ways that people could actually um, get better uh, and feel better. And taking the time to investigate and, and find those solutions and then to talk about it. I think that that's probably the most important thing is that the more we talk about these things, the bigger of an impact that we can make in it. You know, a very small group of people can really make significant change if they're just loud and compelling. And I think that we just need to get together um, as a collectively as a, a movement for people who have had these experiences and and really get get our voices together and make some changes throughout the world because this is affecting all of us. It is absolutely. And Dr. Barr, if people were interested in finding out more about you and about naturopathic medicine, where should they go? So my website is resiliencenaturopathic.com. Um, you can find out all about the approaches that we take um, with my, myself and my partners, the, the approaches that we take there. Um, there's a lot of information about naturopathic medicine overall. If you just look at the American Association for Naturopathic Physicians, um, there's a lot of information there or the Institute for Natural Medicine. Um, I recommend that people take a look at some of those those things or they can send us an email or give us a call if they do have any questions specifically. Uh, we'd be happy to answer them. Well, Dr. Barr, thank goodness for people like you that are showing us the alternatives and the many and varied routes to good health and well-being. And yes, it might take a bit more reaching out than the easy thing of going to see your doctor, but there are options there if people are willing to go out and look for them. Absolutely. And I think the most important point to drive home is that recovery is possible and, and that people do not have to suffer the way that they are suffering, either untreated or from their treatment itself, that there's absolutely recovery is possible and people can live well. And I'm living proof and um, it's my goal to help people live more uh, true to themselves and to just be well overall. Well, Dr. Barr, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me for the podcast. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to Dr. Barr for that enlightening discussion. And if you want to find out more about Dr. Barr's work, her website is resiliencenaturopathic.com. Also, there are links to Dr. Barr's articles and the other organizations she mentioned in the interview. Just visit madinamerica.com and you'll find the links on the post that accompanies this interview. Madden America News and Updates. On Madden America, we wanted to let you know that the fourth in our webinar series on psychiatric drug withdrawal will be held on January 16th at 2.30pm Eastern Time, 1.30pm Central, 12.30pm Mountain, 11.30am Pacific Time and 7.30pm GMT. Swedish therapist Karina Huckinson will tell of her nearly three decades of experience, first as founder of the Family Homes Foundation and now as founder of the Extended Therapy Room, helping people taper from psychiatric medications. She will speak of her need to put on a white coat given the absence of a medical-based practice for drug withdrawal. 
She will tell of how residential care can be organised around a person in crisis during drug withdrawal, and she will also report on the activities of the International Institute on Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, which she founded last year to bring together international experts on this subject to develop both drug withdrawal training and research. If you register, you gain access to the three previously held webinars plus the remaining four. To register, visit maddenamerica.com and click the education link in the menu. So thank you for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.